This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Ellie Williams, author of the novel The Liar's Dictionary. There's a critic who writes about the history of, of lexicography that talks about biblio-idolatry uh, and the idea that some books are seen as important because they exist rather than um, important because we use them or because they have any actual significance. And that a dictionary often occupies that space on a bookshelf of, of it being a good bookshelf because it has a dictionary on it. We'll be back with Ellie Williams in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven and a half years, I've produced more than 320 episodes of First Draft. Last year, I produced one a week, and already I have interviews scheduled for every week so far through June. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved time and effort, and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. We're going through monumental changes as a society, and as I discussed with the writer Claire Massoud in an interview late last year, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and I believe that what we create The writers and I and you, the listener, matters. There's an alchemy that happens with every single interview and every single production. So please, if you value this program, consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount. But starting with $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. I believe these conversations about art and craft make life better. I hope you find inspiration and enlightenment of some kind in this and every episode. So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 320 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft. I work hard to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics, which dependably add up to conversations that focus on what it means to be alive today. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, edit the show, and do more research. Because at the end of the shows, I recommend other shows I've done in the past that are similar. All of this takes more time than you can probably imagine. It takes equipment, organization, a lot of late nights, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. In fact, tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. 
My guest today is Ellie Williams, author of the short story collection, When I Find I Cannot Kiss You, the novel, The Liar's Dictionary, and the poetry collection, Frit. Williams is also a lecturer in creative writing at Royal Holloway University of London. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Williams has a PhD, and her research focuses on small press publishing, accessibility in the arts, cross-disciplinary collaboration, and the connections between theory, creative expression, readership, scholarship, and enjoyment. Her novel, The Liar's Dictionary, is told in two time periods, 1899 and present day. Both time periods have the same setting, the headquarters for the Swansby's Encyclopedic Dictionary. Peter Winsworth is powerless as a lexicographer and asserts some agency by making up false entries to include in the dictionary. In the modern day story, Mallory is a young intern who must uncover these false entries and save the reputation of the dying family dictionary business. As part of Williams' own PhD study, she researched fictitious entries in dictionaries and began contemplating their origins. We began the interview with Ellie Williams sharing how she ended up investigating false dictionary entries. I'd come across, um, I can never remember whether it was through one of those uh, delightful but frustratingly vague um, rabbit holes when you're on Wikipedia and just clicking link after link after link, um, or through a article, an article by Henry Alford um, that appeared in the New Yorker in 2005 that was all about mount weasels. And those are these fictitious entries, these fake words that are inserted into the body of the text in dictionaries and encyclopedias. Um, I can't remember if it was the Wikipedia page or the Henry Alford uh, article that sparked my interest first, but it was there that I um, first had this idea or this sense of there being these real fake words in real dictionaries. And this was a notion that just really wormed into my um unconscious, I suppose, or subconscious, both of them, perhaps. Um, And I couldn't shake it, this idea of fictions existing in a kind of mischievous or surreptitious way within um, uh, repositories of fact. Um, And for the PhD, really, I wanted to not only find one myself, to be able to uncover one and and claim it as my own, or, and at the same time, um, be able to get into the mindset or or consider the mindset of the person that would create these fake words, uh, where often the most famous fake word, for example, is um, Lillian Virginia Mountweasel, who gave her name to um, these fake words, these Mountweasels, that um, appear as copyright traps. And she was first inserted into a a 1970s dictionary that was published in um, America by Columbia University. Um, And if you read the entry that has the heading Lillian Virginia Mountweasel, it reads like a little short story. Um, It it seems like it's a real entry. So it has her birth date. It has elements of her life that she was born in Bangs, Ohio, um, and that she died in a tragic explosion, this accident um, when she was on commission for Combustibles magazine. And if you were just to glance at this entry in the dictionary, you'd, you might just kind of factor it away um, as some light trivia about something you didn't know before. Um, but it also reads like a little short story. It, it reads, it has humour there, it has wordplay. Um, and the idea that someone had sat down to write this and had crafted it in the way that it might be read as a short story, it might be enjoyed as a short story rather than just um, a kind of functional trap uh, to do with data analysis, um, just intrigued me. Um, and I think if you're going to be working at something for as long as a, a PhD, it helps if you if you are intrigued and if there's an element of pursuit there and, and confusion um, to, to work out what's going on. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was, it, it ended up in part being uh, a creative portfolio, um, kind of slipping into the guise, as I say, of someone that might write an entry like that and what might dictate their decisions or choices or, or limit what they're able to write up in a fake entry. Um, and also a, a kind of critical exegesis of the history 
of these fake words and what's the difference between a fake word and an error being in a dictionary? What's the difference between a, a kind of spontaneous requirement for a new word for something, a neologism, um, and a nonsense word where a word has no requirement in language and no currency? What's the difference between those two things and an obsolete word, so a word that no longer is any useful than once was? Um, so these were all considerations in, in the PhD, and it, it meant reading a lot of dictionaries cover to cover, which I recommend if you're ever um, an insomniac <laughs> or would like to have ambitions to be one. You mentioned Mount Weasel, which in, on the back of your book is defined as the phenomenon of false entries within dictionaries and works of reference often used as a safeguard against copyright infringement. And so you just mentioned that you read dictionaries cover to cover but I still am so curious, like how did you suss out these Mount Weasels? I mean, there there are um, scholars who have gone before me and are, are a lot better at their research than I am, um, that in the main I was relying on their research. So occasionally um, editors of dictionaries will have been contacted about a word in the, the text of the dictionary and asked, um, is this a real word? I can't find it in any other dictionary. Um, and they then are able to... Uh, admit <laughs> that this was a fake word. There are then also the um, instances where the copyright trap has worked. So um, say if if you were writing a dictionary and I'm writing a dictionary, it'd be very easy for me to copy yours because words are words are words. All your words should appear in mine and should be defined in a similar way. Um, however, if you have made one up and it appears in my dictionary, um, it'll be obvious that um, I've just, just copied yours. Uh, so occasionally editors have been able to say, uh, I know that our work has been plagiarized or that the text has been pirated in some way um, because of this particular word. So there is a certain amount of um, uh, a self call out <laughs> and uh, putting up the flare uh, by dint of an editor releasing the Mount Weasel and saying that um, it's, it's done its job. It, it has functioned and, and caught something in its trap. Um, but there are also occasions where, for example, uh, in the epigraph for, for my novel, one fake entry, question mark, uh, the Jungftag, that's spelt with a J, those of you playing along at home, um, that's uh, never been claimed as a fictitious entry. It's never been claimed as a copyright trap by the editors, um, but they don't know why that word is there. Um, it's in a, in a wartime edition of, the, of Webster's Dictionary. Um, and it shouldn't be there. It's it's not a real word. It's about a, a Persian bird, the male of which has uh, one wing, the female of which has one wing, um, but on either side, they can only fly together if they're joined together with this kind of hook and eye principle. It's very weird. It's like, a uh, again, almost like a short story, almost like an allegory, almost like a fable. Um, and it's, it's not clear why it's there. So... Um, I think Rex Rogers uh, was the gentleman that, that wrote about that and queried why why it existed and posited that perhaps it was a, a one of these these Mount Weasels, these fictitious words. Um, but yeah, a lot of reliance on, on other people's hard work and diligence there. And I must say that to my shame, I did not uh, find it. I was not able to, to find a fake word, uh, but not for want of trying. <laughs> you were never able to find a fake word? No, I don't think so. Um, I found a couple of fake words that were, or words that were erroneous, um, but never one that had been undiscovered before. So uh, in a couple of 19th century dictionaries, um, there's the word phantom nation. Um, so that is defined as a as a host of phantoms, as a kind of conglomeration of, of ghosts. Um, and the reason that that exists as a word in dictionaries is due to a printing error. Um, so I think it's in a, a poem of Alexander Pope's um, in the 18th century. And just when his book of poetry was printed, uh, they forgot to include the space in the word between phantom and nation. 
And uh, a lexicographer went a bit rogue and decided, well, if Pope used this word phantom nation, it probably means a host of ghosts. Um, and so included it in his dictionary. And then that mistake appeared in another dictionary. And then that mistake appeared in another dictionary, basing its text on that original dictionary um, and so on and so forth. So that was one of the uh, the words I came across that was curious and was not necessarily meant meant to be there and was not correctly in a dictionary um but i never came across a my own uh fictitious entry in in a reference book no just through this exercise alone it must like start to warp your mind in the sense that does anything mean anything like if you read a word and the definition long enough, it doesn't seem to make sense. And then at the same time, if something's made up and has a definition, what does authenticity really mean? I mean, why, who, who, who is the authority to say that something is a word and isn't a word if they all have definitions? Like, did that sort of mind warp you a little? It definitely was something that for the novel, I wanted my characters to be experiencing this sense of, um, security in using language and being able to communicate effectively or meaningfully, suddenly being at odds with um, a precarity of language. Or I like the fact that you use the word um, authenticity there, that if language or um, a clarity of meaning is dependent upon decisions of an editor, how far can we trust that editor every time? Maybe their politics are very different. Maybe their bias in terms of defining a word is very peculiar to them. Um, or their, as I say, scurrilous or mischievous nature or humor, sense of humor, or a kind of idiomatic idiosyncrasy uh, might um, imbue itself into the text that they've been working on. Um, and a dictionary is therefore transformed from something dependable and entirely trustworthy into something flawed because it is human uh, and the product of, of human labor and endeavor. Um, and certainly in the UK, uh, prior to the 19th century, a lot of the dictionaries that are seen as the great dictionaries, the um, important with a capital I dictionaries, um, were written up uh, or were edited and put together, compiled by usually men like Dr. Samuel Johnson. Um, and if you read his dictionary, you do get this sense of his biases, of um, his humour, uh, and also his his occasional ignorances. So, for example, um, he includes in, in his 1755 dictionary of the English language uh, the word trollmedames, um, which I'm sure you and I use every day, but he has trolmy dames and defines it as of this word, I do not know the meaning. And this sense of, well, you didn't have to include it. If you don't know the meaning, you you really don't have to put this word that you have at your fingertips into the, the body of the text. Um, and this sense emerges of, of rather a dictionary being a useful tool designed for users as being actually something about... Um, an accretion of language or a collecting of language with a kind of greediness um, rather than generous. And I definitely became sure of how insecure I had to be about trusting dictionaries uh, during the PhD. And, and as I say, I, I tried to be alert to that um, with motifs and, and themes um, as they occurred to me in, in the novel. Yeah. So let's talk about the Liars Dictionary. So you were doing this research for your PhD and you had mentioned that you were trying to imagine who these people were that would have introduced these fake words. And that was basically um, the plot of your book in that you separated it into two time periods. One is pretty much present day. And you have this young woman named Mallory who's working at this dictionary called Swan's Bees that has been a long, around for a long time. And the one of the heirs of the of the dictionary is trying to digitize it and put it online. And she is helping him. And then they discover these fake words. So she's kind of. Um, along with her girlfriend who helps her sometimes trying to suss out who these fake words, um, what, where, where they are in the dictionary. 
And then at the same time, you're back in time. I'm, I'm not sure exactly the year you can share that with me, but we meet Peter Winsworth, who is one of many people working at the dictionary. He's in charge primarily of the S's. He has um, a, a fake lisp and he's kind of a character and he's the one that begins introducing these fake words. And so tell me a little bit about choosing these two time periods and, and who these characters were. And and then we can talk a little bit about the things that they, they face. Sure. Um, so as you say, I wanted there to be this quasi-relationship between the 19th century lexicographer um, who's making up these words and the contemporary use uh, or misuse of that dictionary he was working upon. Um and seeing how the ambition and the hopes for this dictionary that the 19th century lexicographer Peter Winsworth uh, might have had as someone working on a dictionary, on a new dictionary, um, how over time that really was um, put to ruin or it became a folly. The, the dictionary was not successful. In the 21st century, it's kind of a, a joke that Swansby's um, new encyclopedic dictionary is not uh, the key, crucial, or even always useful reference work um, that uh, the original editors would have dreamed it might be. Um, and really, I chose those two time periods in part because in the 19th century, as much as lexicography was changing, um, so in in the UK, the Oxford English Dictionary was first starting to be compiled in, in the 19th century. And that was a very different process to some other dictionaries as they had been edited before. So rather than it just being one man or one person um, defining words and getting people to write up those definitions, instead it was this international project whereby readers of literature and otherwise would send in definitions uh, of words so that this sense of a census of language was being enacted um, and that uh, a team of editors and various clerks would be working through those um, those definitions and ensuring that the etymology and the source texts uh, were correct. Um, and that felt like a very exciting and energetic way of imagining what the project of writing a dictionary or, or conceiving of a dictionary might be. And I, I thought that concentrating on that time period in terms of um, what was at play would be galvanizing, would be an interesting moment. I also very much enjoy in terms of the 19th century, not only a, a certain a kind of melodrama and, and Victoriana that goes along with it that, that is fun to write, but also this sense of just as facts and words in dictionaries are not always perhaps what they seem, but also how history itself is always something that's received and not fully, we're not fully able to understand it. We, we don't know what it was like to live in the 19th century. Um, and I wanted to have the contemporary modern day character, um, Mallory, uh, to be trying to piece together from the fake words that she's uncovering, this sense of a psychology of a person that lived then, rather than relying on the kind of tropes and cliches um, that she and we as readers all have of that time period. Um, I also, in terms of 19th century uh, Britain and in terms of the literature of the time, I'm really interested in uh, nonsense literature, um, stuff by Lewis Carroll, by Edward Lear, um, and how that corresponds to this time when there was so much emphasis on new science, uh, on new inventions and on industry and making sense of the world um, in uh, variously newly funded and, and able ways. Um, the fact that at that time there was also nonsense literature, this emphasis on uh, the meaning of meaninglessness, of absurdity, uh, of logic puzzles and frustration of, of understanding, um, as well as being quite enjoyable and, and ridiculous and ludicrous and fun for that reason. Um, I wanted to really concentrate on, on some aspects of that in terms of realising a, a 19th century world in, in my fiction. So 
that's why I chose uh, it's set in, in 1899, that, that portion of, of the novel. Um, and as I say, the modern day, the fact that we, my relationship with dictionaries is so different now, even compared to when I was growing up, I'm now less likely to use a dictionary, far less likely. I'm, it's more likely that I will look something up on Wikipedia or I'll just double tap a word on my phone and there'll be a definition there. I won't browse a dictionary. I won't have that same curiosity or um, incidental uh, brushing up against uh, a strange new word. It's more likely that I will be given a resource and then immediately be able to check particular words within that resource or material. Um, and I dare I say that nowadays, the notion of misinformation, of disinformation, of um, people using language and rhetoric in such a way in order that um, people believe it to be true without double checking it, without fact checking it, um, seems it's always important, uh, but it seems ever present currently. Um, I wanted to be able to almost pit that relationship that the contemporary moment has with with language and with trusting language and what we're told um, with this idea of of a slightly hubristic hopefulness about language and pinning language and clear definition down. I want to talk about your character, Peter Winsworth. But first, I was curious, since you have read the dictionary from cover to cover, are you like a killer Scrabble player? <laughs> I no, unfortunately, I'm not. I wish I, I wish that I were. No, I I'm an ambitious and I have a good poker face uh, when it comes to Scrabble, but unfortunately, poker faces uh, are good for poker and no good for Scrabble. So no, I'm I'm no good at, at Scrabble at all. Um, but I'm I'm very hopeful <laughs> when I play Scrabble, um, and uh, choose my opponents wisely rather than being any good at it. <laughs> So Peter, who worked at the dictionary, he was one of many people, mostly men, but there was a, a few women there. And he was he was kind of like a mealy guy. He did have this fake lisp that he used, and he didn't seem to have a huge amount of agency in his life. And maybe that's where he found agency was making up these words it gave him maybe some kind of power he didn't have and he had some people around him who worked there who had money or power or their work there was just kind of incidental to other things they were doing in their lives yeah I think with Peter exactly as you say in many ways he is a very hopeless and hapless character. Um, he doesn't have a lot of control or, or as you say, agency in, in the choices he's able to make, in the work he's able to do. Um, and in order to protect himself and his sense of, of meaningfulness, really, um, he is on the one hand very defensive. So um, he makes up having a lisp because he believes that that means that people are, are more gentle with him or will um, overlook other mistakes that he makes. Um, whether that's true or not is uh, brought to bear in the book. And he is not an innocent character. You know, he does deceive people and he is more concerned often with getting away with things than he is with proving himself to be correct or with doing the right thing. And as you mentioned, he is able to, by making up these words, by coming up with words that reflect a personal experience or uh, impression of the world that he alone believes that he has, that's his way of having a legacy. That's his way of being creative, of um, having uh, a moment of attention and a moment of stillness where the whole world revolves around his experience um, that he is not granted in the rest of, of his uh, working life uh, or his romantic life, certainly. Um, he's a very jealous character. He's a very um, gentle character. Um, and I would say he means well, but often... Um, he doesn't try very hard to mean well. <laughs> um, I have a lot of, of uh, sympathy for his character, or I wanted to elicit sympathy for him. Um, but 
I also feel that a lot of the problems he gets into are entirely of his own making. Um, so no, I, I, um, I have a, an affection for, for uh, him as a character, certainly. And then there's Mallory, who is, she's young. I think she took this job as an intern because it was a job and she's kind of trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life. She has a really positive, loving relationship with her girlfriend, Pip, but at the same time, she's a little bit afraid to be fully out in the way that I think Pip is or would like her to be. And she, you would think that she, because she's an intern, that she doesn't necessarily have this power at work. She is, there's some scary things going on, bomb threats to the building and the business. And she's working for this ancestor who first found the dictionary. Um, But at the same time, I think she is a propulsive force um, in the book and for really kind of digging into what's really going on there. I definitely wanted with Mallory someone who doesn't necessarily have a lot at stake in terms of what her job or her role is. She doesn't fetishize language. She doesn't really care necessarily about how Swansby's international or Swansby's new encyclopedic dictionary functions, whether it does well as a business, whether it fails as a business or a a cultural artifact. What she does care about is um, her relationship. What she does care about is her feeling of security. And in the novel, I really wanted to, um, or I, I set out, I guess, with Mallory to see how far language and being able to define oneself um, through words, but also without words, um, can be part of, of learning and developing. Um, and that one can be disappointed in, um, the way that words let us down, or one can be, um, both intrepid with language, but have a lot of trepidation about finding the right words for how you are feeling or for who you want to be or, or what you recognise as going on. Um, so Mallory is, is unsteady when it comes to language. Um, and she, I spoke about Peter Winsworth's jealousy. She's also, um, I wanted to write her as someone who's quite envious of other people's certainty. So you mentioned her girlfriend, Pip, I think Mallory is quite envious that Pip is so sure of how to talk about herself and how to define the world that she operates within. While Mallory is is an uncertain person um, and would like to know how to use words well, um, but often feels quite uh, constrained by by words um, or or unable to to use them as she might like. Throughout the book, we also meet David, who is the heir to this dictionary. And he is, it's kind of a fool's errand because he wants to keep the name of the dictionary alive because it was once prestigious and he's digitizing it. But it kind of doesn't make sense because there are, you know, in this day and age, there's so many online dictionaries that are free. And it's not like he had this product that was offering something different. Um, and he also is kind of lost, I think. Yeah. With David, I wanted, um, as you say, someone to be almost standing for this idea of a dictionary being important, that um, there's a critic who writes about the history of, of lexicography that talks about biblio-idolatry uh, and the idea that some books are seen as important because they exist rather than um, important because we use them or because they have any actual significance. And that a dictionary often occupies that space on a bookshelf of, of it being a good bookshelf because it has a dictionary on it. Um, and David Swansby is someone who is proud of the aims of his family's dictionary um, and proud of it, the ambition for that dictionary, 
but as you say, is really coasting on pride alone rather than having a, a meaningful engagement with what it means to be in charge of language or to attempt to possibly <laughs> have any stake in, in how uh, dictionaries are or are not useful nowadays. And again, I think he's it's it's quite a human need or or um, ambition to to care about your name and uh, notions of of honor that might be uh, applied to your name or credit. Um, but in terms of how he then is is styling this as a noble pursuit of that it's more important to have a, a new edition of this dictionary. Um, than it is to actually help real people and uh, real events in the world and safety of employees uh, on kind of the small level uh, in, in, in terms of what he has power over. Um, he is misguided and um, he also is, a, is an absurd character because he can't quite see that for himself. When you really think about you know, all the work they were doing in, in the dictionaries and, and what we were talking about before about, you know, people making up words. But there's also a time where new words come into the vocabulary. Like I know every year the certain dictionaries will, will pronounce a word of the year or it's kind of big news when they talk about the new words that have come out. And like a lot of them are related to technology these days. But I wanted to go back to what you were talking about a little bit about finding the right words for for Mallory, for being out for who she was. There's two pages in the middle where you're kind of getting to this concept. The first thing that you write that I want to talk about is you said, what things in the world do I want to define for other people that might otherwise be overlooked? Coming up with words is a particular kind of weird, creative peristalsis. Memory is involved and self-awareness and absorption. The images of someone tapping your brain as one might tap a trunk for syrup. I loved that paragraph and the idea behind it. I think that we all have either um, wittingly or unwittingly come up with words for, for feelings that we have or we don't quite know that it's the right word for that moment or for that feeling or that anyone else has ever had that feeling or that experience. So there is no other word for it. Um, and often the shape of that word can be a kind of onomatopoeia. It can be that in the same way that if we feel pain, we find ourselves saying ow or an intake of breath, uh, like a gasp of, uh, that shows the suddenness of the feeling. Um, but that one's own experience of language, the vocabulary that we either have handed down to us or that we've discovered or shaped for ourselves, um, the way in which the architecture of a word and the rhythm of a word and its its plosives and its um, alliterations or uh, its assonance um, will all inform our expression and that act of creativity, that act of holding all of those visual cues sometimes as well as aural and oral and percussive um also will um consider rhyme as much as it'll consider volume as much as it'll consider register um and i think that it becomes in the act of creating a new word for a new problem or a new feeling um it's it's a moment of of curiosity it's a moment of making and creativity that um, I'm sure everyone has had at some point or another. I mean, um, lots of your listeners will be uh, familiar with the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which is this extraordinary project that's been running for a number of years online, um, written by the writer, I think it's John Koenig, um, and, and he has a book coming out soon. It's, I think it's been on the cusp of being published for a while, but I'm really excited to, to see when it does come out. But with the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, uh, the writer has been collating um, these new words for experiences um, that don't yet have a word. Um, and because he's chosen these words so well and has defined them so meaningfully, um, they're often... Uh, 
they pop up around the internet on Tumblr blogs, on on Twitter, um, stripped of their source um, of uh, the provenance of the text as if they are real words um, because they're so useful, because we're we're gasping for these words to be used. I mean, one, in, for example, is, is sonder, noun, the realisation that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routine, worries and inherited craziness. Um, we all may have had that thought, that sudden realisation that everyone has their own distinct, unique, complex rich, um, full interior life. Um, and the idea that we don't have a word for that realization is something that Koenig has, has leapt upon, um, and has so memorably, uh, created this, this both word and definition. Um, and it's that kind of experience, that moment of creativity where we're shaping those words that, um, that struck me, uh, and that I wanted to get at or communicate or fiddle around with in, in that paragraph. You must have thought a lot about made up words yourself. Like if you had to make up a word, you're talking about like, what would it sound like? What would it feel like? Have you made up a favorite word at all? Um, I don't know if I've made up a favorite one. Um, I think that it's interesting that most families or or close communities, whether network of friends or um, neighbors, you all will have, we all will have uh, these words that we use as uh, a kind of uh, an informal slang or, or a catchphrase or, or something like that, where it has a, a meaningful currency within that community, but means completely nothing uh, out of that community um, or that correspondence. I think often, uh, weirdly enough, it's for uh, devices like remote controls. Um, I don't know if you did a, a quick poll of every house or household on your street and what they call their remote control, you will probably get a hundred different, uh, strange words for that. Um, so I, I mean, having said that, I now really want to conduct that poll mm-hmm. now, but unfortunately not in lockdown, <laughs> stopped from doing these, these censuses. Um, I can't now think of the top of my head of a favorite word that I have. Um, it's probably one that I mumble under my breath without realizing it, uh, every day. I'll, I'll make a note and get back to you on that one. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you a little more about Mallory and, and finding the language for who she is, because even though you know, you write, I get on the tip of my tongue-ish when it comes to being out. For a start, the tenses go all wrong and my thoughts all come disjointed and panicked, disarrayed like an upturned box of index cards. I've been gay since I can care to remember, but haven't been able to tell other people. And you kind of go on talking about that. But I think it's also universal, not just to Mallory, but to everyone who's trying to put words around their identity and who they are in the world, um, their preferences, their, I mean, to find like one word for that is, feels very limiting. Yeah. And almost that at different stages of, of one's life and relationship with oneself and how, how you feel about yourself. Um, sometimes you want fixity. Sometimes you want a term or a word that you can stand behind, that you can stand in front of, that you can shout. And sometimes you want the complete opposite of that. You just, you don't want to be termed or you don't want to be pinned down by something that could be defined or misdefined by someone else. Um, and that, uh, particularly for Mallory's character, that's to do with, uh, elements of her sexuality or, or her identity um, but also with, with language generally, uh, I suppose that circles back round to her, um, sense of uncertainty often, um, and how far she wants to be able to use language and feel in control of language, uh, rather than have no need for language whatsoever. Um, and I think that for that reason, I'm most interested to an alertness and a curiosity about language rather than necessarily how it could be used didactically or, or with rigidity. I think language can can be very useful and is very useful and very important. And it also is important because it can be played with, um, because it can be undermined. <laughs> um, so 
I think sincerity and insincerity are are important um, cousins when it comes to appreciating dictionaries and and being artful with their contents. One of Winsworth's, he kind of has a nemesis at at work. His name is Frasham. Yeah, that's right. Um, my friend, uh, the, the poet, uh, Prudence Bussy Chamberlain, she um, once did a laugh in the style of Muttley, the dog from the cartoons, and it sounded like Frasham, and I thought that that's the perfect name for a villain. <laughs> um, uh, that's the, the genesis for his name, just to, just to interrupt with that. Right. So Frasham is is kind of his nemesis. He's he works there, but he doesn't seem like he needs the money. He's kind of in in society in a certain way. He has traveled a lot to research words like travel that you question if he really needed to go to Russia to investigate the word czar and the history and the spelling of it. But that's, you know, the kind of opportunities he gets that Winsworth never gets. And he kind of toys with Winsworth. And he has a girlfriend, fiance named Sophia, who is nice to Winsworth. Winsworth doesn't have many people that are nice to him and he meets her and they strike up kind of like this casual friendship. And it's a little bit of a struggle for Winsworth because he doesn't like Frasham and he also has caught Frasham like fooling around with other women. And Sophia has a whole different take on her own like relationship with Brasham and who she is in society. And she also invites him to this kind of secret party. So with Sophia and her relationship with, with language and with the world is as a, a, a woman in the 19th century, she does not have access to the same power as her male counterparts. Um, she is not able to acquit herself as her male counterparts do or might like to. Um, And yet she has a very relaxed and healthy disregard for propriety. Um, So the in the same way that that Winsworth's kind of caught up in um, saying the right thing or being seen to say the right thing, she is keen to live her life where she's able to push those boundaries and seek out pushing those boundaries. Um, And she delights in that. Um, And part of that delight uh, in the novel is, as you say, that there's this party that she in part organises and and definitely is uh, enthralled to be part of um, that takes place in the British Museum. Um, And there is, in the history of the British Museum, uh, as with many institutions, um, a side to it that is not about um, education, that is not about careful or um, informed curation, um, but is to do with what is not shown to the public, what is kept under lock and key. Um, And in the the case of the British Museum, um, for a long time, that was Uh, the secretum, which is an extraordinary word for an extraordinary thing, which is where all of the uh, erotic works of art or works of art um, or uh, often stolen, uh, appropriated um, sculptures and uh, tools that were too vulgar, in inverted commas, for the public gaze. Um, The idea that someone might see a certain artifact and be horrified by it, um, meant that they were kept in this secretum. So this this secret room um, where certain members of the museum's um, staff and people uh, who could apply to see those, those works, whether for scholarship or otherwise, they'd be able to gain access to it, but it wasn't for general display. Um, and in the novel, I have this as a place that Sophia, who is very charming and, as I mentioned, is is willing and keen to um, transgress boundaries when she sees them, um, it's in that room, in the secretum and amongst all these objects uh, that she uh, is part of this party. Um, and I wanted that scene to be 
where Winsworth, who is aghast often at the liberties that people take, not because they're liberties, he kind of wishes he could be that free, um, but he is—he does not have the character that uh, allows him to do that easily. Um, it's at that moment that he realizes how different Sophia and he really are. And it was fun, fun to research and fun to write about. I think he needed a character like Sophia in his life. <laughs> Yeah, at least one character like Sophia. <laughs> because I think he, she really spurred him on. Like he had secret dreams and I think she helped him realize some of those. Definitely. I think he he was in the throes of the dictionary and really only understood his life in terms of whether he was a good cog in a machine or whether he was... A spanner in the works. Uh, I think that Sophia allowed him to see life as more than that, um, and his own interests or desires or motivations to be not necessarily related to the labour that he is um, part of, or that what his own personal history might seem like it's locking him into. It's kind of a good reminder to make sure that you have friends that are different than you. Yeah, I agree. It's it's really a, a novel about friendship and getting out of the house. <laughs> Mallory, at the end, the place where she works, she's been getting these bomb threats and a bomb does go off. So all of this threat that we is looming throughout the book comes to fruition. So the bomb threat was actually coming from David, the heir to the dictionary. And I think it was like, God, I felt like that before sometimes, like not that I <laughs> that I would set off a bomb, but say you're about to do something and you're really nervous and you're just like, I'll do anything to get out of this driving test. Can I bomb my car? Can I throw myself in front of a, a moving truck and have to go to the hospital so I won't have to take this driving test or whatever? And I think he was just his back was up against a wall and he he was realizing how irrelevant he was in some ways. So he set the bomb. Yeah, that that appealed to me, the idea that this person whose life's work and kind of the, the legacy of his ancestors' life's work um, is to regulate language, to permit words and strict definitions for reality in a very regimented way or a regulated, edited way. The idea that he would have this rashness and this moment of, um, I could just get away. How can I make this problem go away? I could just explode it. I could literally explode it. Um, that he's he's nuts. <laughs> um, and it's, it's not necessarily... Uh, the right thing to have done. But I, I did want to have a moment where someone is is being propelled rather than compelled to do something that would change the world rather than to do something that changed how the world might be written about or defined. Um, so it it is an abrupt <laughs> ending for uh, the great work of... Um, Swansby's Encyclopedic Dictionary. Um, but I felt that it was important that here was a character that was able to uh, make rash decisions and make good on those decisions rather than to, to be another character suspended in this feeling of fealty to, to a dictionary and to language. As Mallory is running out and realizing this threat to her body and physical safety, she runs out and says, I always dislike the expression sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's one of the least useful ways of understanding one another or how words work. I was really struck by that because it was not something I expected. As I've mentioned, Mallory is, is a tentative person and she is unclear what her relationship to words and to, to dictionaries, but also to to words that she is called, to words that she uses, both for herself and for other people. Um, and the fact that all of that anxiety that she had and all of that fear or, or nervousness or um, lack of clarity, the fact that that was put into perspective by the fact that she could be hurt, that someone was threatening her, and worse, her, um, her girlfriend, her partner Pip, 
um, it's a clarifying moment for her um, that both words and action can be awful um, in the same way that they can also be be wonderful. Um, and she, I think that her response to those different parts of her life or those different things that she has to encounter that are, are beyond her control um they they needed space in in the novel um and the way in which she kind of understands it through that sticks and stones may break my bones but words may never hurt me um kind of calling out the lie there or or the meaninglessness perhaps of of that phrase who is that phrase useful for um i don't know if it's big stones and big sticks that are in control of it and have got it um, running through our through our minds as a phrase. But um, yeah, it, it felt like a phrase that she needs to dismantle and she needs to ruminate on uh, at a moment where action is needed and rather than words. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. Um, so for this, I thought I'd just choose a, the beginning extract from... Um, a short story by Ali Smith, uh, the the British writer. Um, It's from her short story, The Second Person. So, The Second Person. You're something else. You really are. This is the kind of thing you'd do. Say you were standing outside a music shop. You'd go into that shop and just buy an accordion. You'd buy one that cost hundreds of pounds, one of the really big ones. It would be huge. It would be a pretty substantial thing just to lift or to carry across a room, never mind actually play. You would buy this accordion precisely because you can't play the accordion. You'd go into the shop. You'd go straight to the place they keep the accordions. You'd stand and look at them through the glass of the case. When the assistant, who'd have noticed you as soon as you came in, partly because you look, you always look like a person of purpose, and partly because you happen to be, yes, very eye-catching, came straight over to serve you, you'd point at the one you wanted. The shop probably wouldn't have that many makes of accordion, maybe just five or six. You'd point at the one whose name you like the sound of best. You'd like the sound of a word like Stefanelli more than you'd like the sound of a word like Hona. It would also be the one you liked the look of best, with its frame, if that's what they're called, made of a light brown wood, a good workaday colour. The other accordion makes in the case would look too lacquered for you, too varnished, less ready for the world. When the assistant asked you if you'd like to try the Stefanelli before you purchased it, you'd simply hand her your bank card. You'd take the heavy accordion home, you'd sit here on the couch and heave it out of its box and onto your knees. You'd press the button or unhook the leather strap or whatever keeps its pleats shut. You'd let it fall heavily open like a single huge wing. You'd let it fill itself with air like a huge single lung. I think I'll probably stop there. (laughs) Tell me why you chose that. I used the word artful before, and and that happens to be a a title of one of Ali Smith's uh, collections of uh, of fiction and nonfiction together. And Ali Smith, for me, is a writer who is artful with language, that uh, is playful with language, but is tender too. Um, Someone who takes such care with with the rhythms of her sentences um, and does so not so that as readers, we're trying to work out what the game is, or we're trying to um, kind of nod along with the gimmick that's been decided. Um, But through very simple and appreciative language, um, here with the second person, this, this imagined you, we are accessing a world that is to do with shared understandings. um, And it can be fantastical, it can be clever, um, but it's also very real and affecting. Um, and I, I just love the, the fiction of Ali Smith, I think, an extraordinary writer. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, and it's in many ways embarrassing to follow Ali Smith. <laughs> so um, luckily you can't see the uh, aghast blushing that I'll do during this. Um, but this is taken from uh, one of my short stories, uh, which also features someone in the second person. Um, 
And I should say that this is taken from the middle of the short story, um, where the narrator is looking at a piece of art that is uh, a series of black and white squares, basically. Um, the short story is titled Smote, or When I Find I Cannot Kiss You in Front of a Print by Bridget Riley. Uh, and yes, this is just um, a little bit from the middle and the end of that story. Uh, really, it's about black and white squares, <laughs> so it's not the most thrilling action sequence, um, but I'll just pick somewhere in the middle. And that's the power of it, the checking of my hand in your hand. I'm sure there are rules about that kind of thing on a notice board somewhere that we can ignore and others can misread. It'll all be there in black and white, the empty page so daunting, the full page so disappointing, a new moon seen through eyelashes, many moons grated by one eyelash welted and unbelted and wrought through spaces, hot static of white noises rough and tumble, tumbrel wheelings, the black and white of it, bletting the wits and eider down, even as I watch it, the pairing of us, the painting behind your shoulder, through your hair, striations, despite the gallery attendant leaning in. I cannot find the angle of your jaw in a way that isn't calming. I do not want to calm any part of you in this gallery, when this painting could autocorrect the clouds outside the Tate Gallery into order, make us grayscale plaid-eyed and with ears full of silito tartans, klaxon blare, all new ceramic and sable fur eggshells on the curbside, charcoal in the cream, bone in the coffee where headlong and garbled on the gallery wall geometry curdles, and all that I am you have made italic. Holding you here is to make a chequered past. I will never be brave, and I cannot kiss you by this painting. And you have leaned in and have kissed me without even thinking about it. It is the easiest thing in the world. And you stark me, and I am strobe-hearted, and as you move on to the next painting, the gallery attendant fiddles with his watch. A Bridget Riley print grows a little cooler on the wall. And all in all, you spectrum me unexpectedly. And that's that. And tell me why you chose that. With that work, uh, as I say, it's, a, it's about someone looking at a, a work of art and trying to get across the feeling of looking at art, let alone describing a, a work of visual art through... Uh, the written word, it is a very clunky translation. Um, and I wanted, I really wanted with that short story to get across some of that idea of being moved by a work of art while also quite embarrassed by not being able to say why it's moving. Um, and there's something breathless about that, but also something um, precocious about it. And I wanted, I found it difficult for this story to see how far metaphors and illusions could be useful when it comes to communicating how you feel about a painting to someone else. Um, and I, I wrote it very quickly. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that I wrote it quickly because when it came to editing, uh, after the first pass, I think if I hadn't had that confident kind of splurt <laughs> or, or burgeoning of, of thought and written it all down in, in one kind of burst, um, I wouldn't have got some of that energy that I that I wanted with it. Um, and I, I now I'm proud of it as a story, uh, but I did feel that um, I was very uncertain of, of whether I could get across what I what I wanted. Where do you write? Um, well, currently, uh, I write at home. Um, my wife is also a writer, the writer Nell Stevens, um, and we write in a in an office in our flat together. Um, my desk is facing one way, her desk is facing the other way. Um, we sit there um, muttering under our breaths at one another, uh, and the rule is that we're not allowed to talk when we're in the room. We have to only text one another. Um, so it's a, a kind of... Hermitage of two. Um, that's that's where I write at the moment. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I mean, it's tricky at the moment. Um, we have a small dog uh, called Briar um, and we take her for, for walks. Um, we kind of alternate depending on who's having the worst day <laughs> to get away from writing. Um, yeah, so we, we walk up and down the small hills of, of North London um, and... It's a foggy and 
bright-ish day today in North London, so it's uh, my job to take it for an afternoon walk later today. Um, so that's how, at the moment, I get away from, from the desk. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I'm very bad at showing my work to people, so it tends to be that I send it to my agent, first of all. I, I don't have a agree. I was going to say, I don't have a friend I send it to, which sounded maybe a bit more pathetic than I meant it to. Um, I I care a lot about what my friends think of my writing and I care too much. So I don't send first drafts to them. Uh, I send a first draft to my agent, then get it back, uh, howl at the moon. And, and then um, on the second draft, I'll, I'll send that to my sisters, actually, first of all, and my wife, and then howl at the moon again as they send back their feedback. <laughs> That's usually the, the way of it. Yeah. How have you dealt with rejection? I take it well, I think. I mean, the fact that I paused when answering that maybe uh, tells the lie of that statement. Uh, I think I deal well with rejection. Um, with that story that I had just read out, that was actually written for a, a, a um, poetry journal in the first instance, um, and it was rejected by that poetry journal. Um, and so in a slightly miffed um, flurry, uh, I got rid of some of the um, line spaces, uh, the line breaks, uh, made it a bit more obviously into prose and and sent it off um, to a short story competition. And I was shortlisted for that competition. So I, I took the rejection well and <laughs> used it uh, to fuel my, my energies elsewhere. Um, but no, I, I expect rejection a lot of the time and I get it <laughs> a lot of the time. So I, uh, I make a habit of... of um, looking forward to the next rejection. Yeah. And what is your favorite word? At the moment, um, my favorite word is pamphlet. Uh, I think it has a nice assertive kind of swing to it. Uh, and it almost sounds onomatopoeic. I think if I shook a pamphlet at you, uh, you'd hear that word uh, over, the, over the wires. Um, yeah, let's go with pamphlet. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing uh, about your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for such great questions. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Ellie Williams, author of the novel, The Liar's Dictionary. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Susan Orlean about the true story of arson at the Los Angeles Public Library in the 1980s. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with George Saunders, Anna North, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, and Alan Lightman. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay safe and healthy. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.